Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. It is episode five. This one was a lot of fun. I, Cinco. Cinco de, Cinco de February. And you're sporting a very festive mustache for this episode. Yeah, it's Oscar season. Got to get some buzz for Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yeah. Freddie Mercury. So uh, this this uh, this episode was a lot of fun for me. We got to interview Mike Lee, who is, uh, I would say, a mentor of mine yeah. and uh, and just a friend. And I got to work for him at Hope Community Church, where he's a mega pastor, ten thousand people plus on the weekends. Yeah, and I've learned a ton from him. And I was I was really excited to have him come on the show. Yeah, he's such a rock star. He has the X factor. He's like a movie star. I get that vibe when I'm around him. Like oh, I'm a little shy. Will he sign my Bible? <laughs> But yeah, uh, he charges for I've that. I've never asked him that. But it, it was, was a great show. It was, it was fun so to good. talk about like yeah. how what it was like founding that big church, like yeah. what what his expectations were going into it. Just yeah, a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, he's such a cool. He's such a guy's guy. A real, real dude. Real person. Loves the heart of people. So it's yeah. nice to be here with him. Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. I'm Joe. I'm Josh. And today we're really excited. We've got Mike Lee, founding pastor of Hope Community Church. Let me just tell you a little bit about him and get the details out of the way here up front. But the church he started is Hope Community Church in 1994. Three other families moved here with him from California. One of those families happens to be my neighbor, <laughs> Jeff and uh, Becky. They live right next door to me. They went from meeting in townhomes and clubhouses and tiny buildings to medium-sized buildings and then reaching about 10,000 people now per weekend over three campuses at Raleigh Apex in Morrisville and partnering with other local churches like Ship of Zion in downtown Raleigh and other countries with Agape Campus in Haiti. Um, so it's a pretty big deal, I think. Did you ever think it would get this big? No. <laughs> no, we had no plan. We had no strategy. We had no money. <laughs> that, no. Seems, that seems like the right way to do it. All I knew was uh, um, I knew that I grew up here and the people that were going to move here. This was picked the best place in America to live. Yeah. So when we were living in California, I thought, well, everybody's going to be moving here and they're not going to go to the church I grew up in where everybody wore a black suit, white shirt, red tie, King James only. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of church. And so I thought um, maybe maybe start a church, just kind of love on people and see what happens. Yeah. So, yeah. So what what would, what do you think was the, the catalyst or the deciding factor to leave California, which is arguably a very good state to live yeah. and uh, and pack up? And then you got people to come with you to start something brand new. Weren't you at a church at the time? I was passing a church in the Bay Area, California. My wife's an Orange County girl. So we were, you know, we were pretty entrenched in California. Um, I went to the San Francisco area to pastor a church that wanted to do a turnaround ministry. They just celebrated 50 years of um, of uh, being a church and they wanted me to come in and help them become relevant in this new culture and uh, reaching this new generation. And I basically did everything I could do to talk them out of hiring me, kind of warned them what it was going to be like, the price it was going to cost and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. But I still got a unanimous vote because this is where they wanted to go. And we knew with the, about two weeks in that, um, that the, the, the heart was willing, but the flesh was weak. It just wasn't probably going to happen. And so we we had to figure out how to make that transition and still lead a church to be a growing church without going through what they actually hired us to do. Mm-hmm. 
and we didn't feel like we could leave because I learned a long time ago that uh, God releasing you from somewhere is probably more important than where he's taking you. So we're like, okay, God, you brought us here for a reason. It doesn't make sense to us, but we're going to, we're going to dig in and make the best of it. And God really blessed the church grew remarkably, but it was a tough church. It was people that had been there 40 years sometimes. And uh, just, I'll forget one, uh, one lady came to my office one day and she said, she was always giving me grief, but she said, I was here before you got here and I will be here after you're gone. And this, oh man. This was, was she, this was, my, was she right? Yeah. Here's my, <laughs> here's my incredible spiritual pastoral thought. I will stay here now to I bury you. And then I will dance you on your grave. <laughs> but she outlasted me. Ah. She kicked my butt. Anyway. So, um, I actually went to a conference just to get away from my church for a couple of days. Mm. And, um, Rick Warren, uh, mm. wrote the purpose driven life. He, um, he was sharing that some of you are trying to lead a church that doesn't want to be led. You should probably go just start something that's mm. going to change people's lives. Yeah. Mm. And you've been at established churches. So hope was your first attempt at a church plant. Yeah. I pastored for 15 years before I took this on. So we, we were established. I mean, we, we lived in the beautiful home with the pool and went to Hawaii. You know, my kids were in the bit, we had a big private school there. My wife, she was a music major. So she got to part-time teach music and coach cheerleaders, pretty much what she wanted to do. So we kind of have had a dream job from a, uh, from a ministry perspective. And yeah. so the idea of, of picking up roots and uh, relocating 3000 miles with kids and a wife who'd only known California and starting life literally all over again was mm. uh, yeah, it was a bit traumatizing. Looking back now, we 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 often joke and ask what we would we have done differently. We've never come up with that answer. Mm. Yeah, it just we just knew that's what God was calling us to do. Mm. So, but we had no idea what we were what we were really getting into. So, yeah, mm. I know for me, uh, so I spent a lot of time working at churches. So I went to college to be a youth pastor. That's what my degree is in, mm. and um, actually in high school, I didn't need enough. I didn't need all the credits that I, I didn't have to take any more credits to graduate my senior year. So they can, they let me take a co-op program where I got to work at the church, but I couldn't work at a church because separation of church and state. So I was a janitor at the church and mm. I cleaned the church's toilets and everything. And I've been working at churches pretty much ever since. Mm. And, uh, for me in the tradition that, that I was in at the time, it was, it was, I would say looking back, I don't want to say bad teaching or anything like I don't want to be accusatory, but maybe I just didn't hear things the way that I should have. But I remember getting really confused about certain things. I grew mm -hmm. up in a Pentecostal church mm -hmm. that holiness is uh, not doing anything. And then there was this idea that I could uh, live my life in such a way that would somehow be like this e example that and then I knew like real life Joe would screw up like in 10 minutes after this. And I got saved at every altar call for like five years straight. And I just constantly hitting this. I know what I'm supposed to be and I'm nowhere near what I'm supposed to be version. And I think what I had was a really misunderstood in my mind version of what integrity was. I thought integrity was making no mistakes. That's being integrous. And then I remember at some point in along the journey. And I think it was sometime in Bible college is how spiritual I am sometime in Bible college, realizing <laughs> I got having to get my attention and saying something along the lines of, you know, I'm not impressed by what you don't do. Like mm. that doesn't impress me at all. Like, congratulations. You don't do that. <laughs> Yay. Mm. I would much rather you do things mm. than just not do things. Yeah. And, um, and it took a, 
it took like years for me to learn that lesson. And it wasn't until like recently, I would say like last year where God introduced a new big lesson for Joe. It's like, you know, I'm not just interested in you doing things. Mm. I'm interested in who you are mm-hmm. and the kind of person that you are. Yeah. Mm. And, um, but I know for me, I actually got to work for Mike for about nine years and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Mm. And, uh, when I first started going to hope, I know it's a couple of things. I was mm. doing this blog at the time called marketing Jesus, where I was going church shopping mm. and I would go visit churches in the triangle and kind of write like a little positive review, like nothing salacious, like this guy was boring, uh, or anything <laughs> like that. And somebody from hope, uh, reached out to me on Twitter and said, you should totally come check out hope and I'll give you a tour of the booth and everything. And so so we went to hope and really liked it. Mm. And then I remember the first time meeting Mike, I thought, wow, cause I'd been attending for a while. And this was my first thought that he's actually the same off stage as he is on stage, mm. which for me and the way I grew up was like, how did somebody do that? Because <laughs> mm. I grew up in a tradition with like church face and all that. Like, even if you did sin and do dumb stuff, you certainly didn't let that on Mm -hmm. um, when you came to church, because then you would somehow be, that's, it's silly to think about now. Like somehow you break your reputation of God because, you know, you're supposed to be this representation of doing everything well. Yeah. And, um, but I remember thinking in visiting the churches in the triangle that there was a lot of good churches. And so back to what you were saying, like in 19, 94 when you guys came over here this was a new kind of church yeah this in those days we were like the only one in this area in fact my dad when i called him from california said hey dad i think we're gonna move back to the Cary area and start this church he said um son i wouldn't do that (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of loving advice they're they're just not ready for you in that kind of church yet and i'm like oh thanks for the great encouragement but yeah what would you say the big difference is because i i might categorize it as the thing that might've made hope unique, I think I wasn't there is that you guys did church for the people that weren't at church yet. Yeah. Which was probably so different than the way a lot of churches are trying to do church for the people that they have. I think one of our biggest strengths at hope hope is one of the biggest challenges for churches. Now everybody wants to do the same thing. I mean, if you, if you, you check out most churches that start today, they like got great music, relevant messages and coffee, right? It's like come to our church. And one of the things I try to encourage young pastors is find out who you are. Every church is going to have its unique personality. Every church is going to have an identity. And if you're just trying to be somebody else, I actually love lost, hurting people. I mean, I would much rather spend time with them at the gym or my neighborhood than with Mm -hmm. church people. It doesn't mean I don't love Christians, but there's the way God wired me is like, I'm just kind of comfortable with you. And so for me, this was natural, just to love on people, lead them into a relationship with Christ, disciple them. And for a long time, I thought, we'll just be a church of 100 people because that's what I can do. Mm-hmm. I can handle that. Um, the problem is, if that's not really how God's wired your heart and you try to do that, you just won't be successful. You'll think, I need a strategy. I need a method. In fact, I met with 11 church planners the other day and I said, you don't really need a strategy or a method. It, it, early on, you just need to love people. If you don't love people and want to see them become disciples and make disciples, you probably aren't a church planner. Yeah. You probably go, should go find something else to do. Do you find, so you've been at Hope now, for this 25 years coming up, right? Yep. 25 years in mm-hmm. Easter. And um, do you find that a lot of people are beginning to, like you said, you just met with 11 <clears throat> church planners. Is that starting to be a common thing? People are saying, hey, Mike, help us out. How do we, do you get a lot of questions like that? Do you well, seek you that know, stuff People look out? at us and there's a couple of, 
couple of fallacies. They they see, oh, Hope was a church plant, started with four families. It's now reaching over 10,000 people. And it's amazing. We now live in a culture where most people make church about three out of every eight weekends. And my wife one time ran the numbers on Kid City. And most people do come pretty much every other week. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that way, we probably reach fifteen to 20,000 people every month that are they're just changing shifts. So there's a lot of people. And I think a lot of people think that's what I want. That's what I want. And so if they... If they see that you that God has used you to do this, yeah. they're like, okay, what's the formula? What's the secret? And I've actually had people say, You're not you're not telling me the secret. They're like, well, what's the secret? Like, what's the formula? Yeah. And it's like people can't handle the fact that sometimes God just does things mm. and you can't explain it. Um, one of the reasons we've never done conferences and things like hope is like, we got nothing to teach you. I mean, it's not like we found the magic formula, the secret to doing things. It's just like we just haven't figured it out. We just I always Think of when it says in the, in, in the book of Acts, how God added to the church daily is he saw fit, you know? Yeah. And I, I just kind of think sometimes God just says, I'm going to bless you for no apparent reason. And um, so pe- everybody's always looking for the secret and there just, there just isn't one. And yeah. I can't explain why 90% of new church plants fail. Um, although I, I, that's probably not true. I, having met a lot of pastors, I can explain to you why 90% <laughs> of church plants fail, but um, why do you think so many, like, do you see a church planner? Cause you, you were just talking about what it was and what it turned into. Do you see somebody like excited about like church planning as like a naive, like, Oh, you have no idea of what is coming. I, I we, we recently, <laughs> yeah, I, we recently had talked to a young guy and, you know, I, I told him, I said, one of the greatest blessings I had is I pastored for 15 years before I planted a church. And a lot of church planners are, you know, they're just right out of seminary. They they don't have any experience. They just have a dream. But without the practical experience, um, it's just a lot you don't know until you've been through it about how to handle people, deal with situations and all. I think the other thing was we came here with no expectations. In fact, I remember when we were about 100 and I was still working construction on the side. We were like two and a half, three years in. And I remember thinking, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't think, I never thought we'd be what we are, but I didn't think I was going to come here and start a church where I was going to be working construction and my wife's going to be working in the marketplace so we could have, you know, healthcare. And I remember coming to the point was like, okay, God, if this is what it is, you're going to have to help me adjust to this because it's not what I was thinking it was going to be, but I'll accept it. And it seemed like that be the, that was the place. So I wonder how many guys are, are starting with just the wrong motives yeah. The wrong expectations. Um, I think we just came here, thought we're just going to, we're going to reach people. We're just going to love people and bring them into a relationship with you. And uh, we didn't worry about any goal. We had, we didn't have goals. Well, you we said earlier, like, statement. what you, what you did and what you would encourage people to do is figure out what kind what's your identity. Do you think that is tied to, or should it be tied to 100% of the time who you are? Like it shouldn't be like an aspirational. We would love to be a, this, but do you think, how much success do you think is attributed to church plants or sorry, my dog is going crazy or even business owners that are starting something who have done something that they're naturally wired to do? How much of, of the success factor do you think that is? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I, when I talk about this, I don't want to give the impression that we just kind of came here and didn't have any idea of what we were doing. We actually went through a pretty, uh, 
tough assessment at that time at the University of Indiana. Uh, the guy there, Dr. Ridley, was in charge of the psychology department, but he assessed potential church planners for uh, Fuller School of Church Growth. So Laura and I went through a three-day assessment where we took all these written tests and then a full day of me just being interviewed by him and then Laura and I together. And then he wrote like a 40-page report about our potential as church planners, what yeah. our strengths would be, what our weaknesses would be, who we needed to surround ourselves with. And he wrote a very strong report in favor that we we were going to do do okay. Well, that was that gave me some confidence. Yeah. But like I try to tell guys, like I just met with a guy. He he's had no assessment. He's never pastored before, and he's got small children. And I can see this being a train wreck. Yeah. Um, and so trying to get across to him, there there probably are some things you should go through to make sure. Like Laura and I went through marriage counseling when we got here even after, you know, pastoring for 15 years, because we knew how traumatic that was going to be on us. And so uh, just to go into it blind, I think that's probably why there's such a high failure rate. And just not knowing what is it uniquely, what is it that God's called me to do? Because every one of us had the same mission statement, Matthew 28, go make disciples. But what's that look like in the world now that I'm going to lead? Yeah. How does that play out at Hope? How does that play out at Providence? How does that play out at, you know, Summit? What does that look like? Yeah, you were talking earlier about what the kind of the climate was, what the culture was like in the 90s when you came here and how hope was kind of unique and taking an approach that was uncommon at the time for a church. Right. I'm really curious because now I think that there's a lot of churches in the triangle that do program for people that aren't here yet that are trying to reach. And so it's less common than it was when we started, Mm -hmm. when you started. And um what do you think is next? Like, what do you, what do you think is the next thing? What do you think is the state of, or what, what's next for the mega church in America? Do you think it's going to change? Yeah. I've, I've said before, I don't know if the mega church was God's idea. I mean, we've gone from, you know, in the 1960, I think there were 10 churches in America with 2000 people. Mm-hmm. Now there's approaching 3000 churches with 2000 people. So people, people don't have a overwhelmingly favorable opinion of mega churches that aren't church people. Yeah. You know what? There's a, there's an interesting history lesson. Uh, if you want a, a quick overview of it in the 1950s seminary switched from uh, discipling and ministering to the individual to ministering to the masses. And that's where your Billy Graham's that's where the citywide crusades, all these big event things began to happen. And that led into the 60s of total rebellion, 60s and early 70s, drug abuse, free love, a war in Vietnam we didn't know how to resolve, uh, all of these social issues that nobody had the answer to. Uh-huh. And so thanks to some college ministries like InterVarsity and Crusade and some of those weak navigators, there was a shift to go back to the individual. But since the mega church movement, if you think about it, we've got a war on terrorism. We don't know how to win. We've got all these sexual identity issues we've never had before. We don't know how to answer. We've got drug abuse like never before. Racism's back like never before. And it's it's kind of a, a lesson that when the church doesn't focus on individuals and it just focuses on the masses, yeah. the individuals, the culture goes, it goes haywire. And so it's interesting you ask that question because I'm getting ready over the next few weeks and then again in September to speak at a conference exponential. And I think they have 6,500 people there. Most of them will be church planners. And I think the only reason you invite somebody my age is like, <laughs> what would you do differently? That's, that's what they want to know. And what I would do differently is somewhere in the journey, we lost traction of the individual and it did 
it, it has to be, it becomes more about the massive because it becomes right. like a monster. You got to feed the monster. Yeah. You got 180 staff. You got to pay theirs. I've never had to lay off a staff person. I can't imagine how traumatic that would be. Mm-hmm. You got to, you got to, you got to pay for all these campuses. You, so you have to minister to the masses and somehow in that process, you overlook the individuals. I was just, just actually talking. My son dropped me off here this morning and I said, you know, the one thing that we can do really well is get the masses together. But one of my big emphasis this year is we got to get them to next steps. We know you're here this weekend. Now you're challenged. Now, you know, your kid needs help. Your marriage needs help, whatever it is. Now what's the next step. But then we send them to the next step. We don't have enough room for them. For example, re-engage our marriage ministry. Mm-hmm. 70 couples wanted to get in, couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. So it just is another reminder. We're not quite even ready now saying go to living free. Cause if you got these addictions or these things you're struggling with, it's free. I get notes. Don't, don't announce, don't push living free anymore. It's full, which says we're doing a great job with the masses, but we still haven't figured out yet. Yeah. How to get it down to the level where we actually impact an individual. You know, when you were talking about the difference between, I bet, am I right? Do you, when you go up and speak, do you talk to individuals do you think you're talking to a crowd or do you think you're talking to a person? Me. I'm usually talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I tell people all the time, I'm like one week ahead of my congregation. Usually whatever I preach is, oh, look what I learned last week. (laughs) So it's like a substitute teacher. Like, yeah, everybody can be a pastor. (laughs) You know what? I feel like, I mean, the the comment I get back more than anybody else is, uh, who told you? Did you set up cameras in my house? You know, (laughs) the, the reality is we all struggle. You know, I was talking um, when we were down in Costa Rica to all these law enforcement people from all over South America is like the reason if, if you really if you really break down the New Testament, it's two things like the, the, all the New Testament writers, how to live, how to live the life God called you to live, but then how to get along with each other. Yeah. So when Paul talks about you got to forgive as you've been forgiven with the assumption there is we're going to offend each other. And this is stuff that goes all the way back. to So nothing's changed. We're still going to offend each other. We're still going to refuse to accept each other. We're going to still put our own needs above everybody else's needs. And so nothing's really changed in culture. We just haven't done the greatest job of of that message of like this is listen, this is stuff we just have to be reminded of because you're never going to get victory in this area. You're never going to forgive everybody. You're never not going to get angry. The other thing I would do differently would be um, like we had 20,000 people for Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And that that's pretty, that's pretty cool, right? That's a big chunk of people. That's mm-hmm. 1% of the triangle. <laughs> so if you're going to really reach the triangle and change the world, one church is not, you can barely make a dent in it. And so I would have early on, I would have worked a lot harder building relationships with other churches and other pastors. Like, um, do you believe in the gospel? Yes. Do you care who gets the credit? No. Then what can we do together to uh, to reach the triangle with the yeah. gospel? So, and it's early. To, it's easier to do, see. We're a threat to churches now. Like if if I walk into your ch- meet with you and you got a church of a hundred, and I say, "Hey, man, what can we do together to reach the triangle?" Your first thoughts: What's what's he want? Yeah. How many well, of my people are you planning on taking? Yeah. And so it would have been a lot easier when we were smaller and struggling to set down and say, man, there's gotta be some low hanging fruit, some things we could do mm-hmm. together that would send a message to, because to me, Acts chapter two, when they were, you know, the church just blew up, you know, 3000 yeah. one day. And it says they were sharing meals together and had studying God's word together and selling their possessions to make sure needs were met. The last verse of chapter two says, and basically the community was in awe, mm-hmm. you know, they were amazed. They didn't say they all believe, but they looked at it and they're like, wow. And that goes to John 17 where Jesus said, may my 
disciples be so unified that the world will see them and say, oh, yeah, Jesus must have come from the Father. Must be something to this gospel thing. So, again, when you're young, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. But you figure that stuff out later on. You mentioned earlier the idea of things kind of resurfacing, racism, Mm -hmm. uh, sexual identity issues. Those those things, I believe, are fuel for a lot of people that are critics or not fans of mega churches to be like, look at their stance on this. And when you were talking about losing focus and not talking about individuals, but talking to a crowd, it's easy when you're talking to a crowd to vilify an entire thing mm-hmm. as opposed to, and I know you and I have talked about this mm-hmm. before. It's really easy to be like, Oh, this is those black and white. It's this when you're talking about sexual identity. And then one of your cousins or your kids mm-hmm. or a family member yeah, it hits home. is, is struggling with sexual identity issues or not even struggling. They just have sexual identity issues that would fit outside of the, the bounds of what most churches would teach or healthy sexual. And then it's totally different because now it's not like a black and white, a statement against mm-hmm. it's more like, how do I, how do I accept this person? How do I not screw up this relationship because of, this thing. And now they're going to lump me into this category with all these people that maybe have done a bad job or have done something or said something to make them feel unaccepted. Um, so it's again, and this goes back to, um, yeah, I was speaking at a, uh, on a panel at a church conference one time, a work conference, um, marketplace, living at your Christian life in the marketplace. And they wanted to have, and it was me, the president of a big seminary, you know, and which was like, I don't even know why I was up there with this guy, but the question came up. If you have a coworker who is having a same sex wedding, should you go? Mm-hmm. And the president of the seminary, pretty conservative seminary went on and on for about 20 minutes about, no, you got to be, you know, you don't associate with it, come out from among them and be you separate on and on and on and on. And so he went on and on and it was pretty clear where he stood. And, um, and then the guy that was leading it looked at me and said, do you have anything to add? And I said, I just would add this one little thing. <laughs> I said, and I, and I'm, you know, you've been the hope. We, I tell people, I don't write the Bible. It's, I don't need to defend it. I'm just telling you what it says. You're going to yeah. have to decide what you want to do with it. Um, there's a pretty doctrinal reason God designed a man and a woman to be in a marriage. And I'm actually going to teach on it in June. Um, it is a representation of the Godhead and I'll get into it a little deeper then. But, but again, if culture says, you know, two people of the same sex can get married, they could get married. So to me, the issue isn't, should they get married or to me, the issue is no one will ever feel uh, you'll never influence anyone who doesn't feel accepted by you. I just know that as a fact, I've got some of my best friends at the church. I've watched their kids grow up and maybe in college they came out and, you know, and, and they're engaged or they're thinking about marrying some, you know, I got ones that have a son, you know, probably he'll marry this other guy. And I would go to the wedding. I wouldn't do the wedding because I don't feel it, it meets the guidelines of what God's called me to do to perform a wedding. But is that just because he's a gay man or do you have the same standard for straight people as well? Exactly. If, if I believe there's some biblical, you know, I always tell people the real issue from a Christian perspective isn't, do you get divorced or not? We know God doesn't like divorce. The real issue is, do you have biblical grounds to get remarried? And so if I feel like you don't have the biblical grounds to get remarried, I would maybe go to your wedding, but I wouldn't do your wedding. So this isn't, this isn't, this is personally me 
what God has called me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I've had these conversations with people like, what should we do? I said, you should probably go back and try to reconcile with your spouse. That's probably what you should do. I mean, if you want to be biblical about now, what's realistic and all, I understand, but again, I don't get to make those guidelines. So I still believe, I still believe that you can, you can accept people without approving of them in such a way yeah. um, that if there is an opportunity where you get to have influence in your life, you haven't shut that door. And that's, that's going to probably vary for everyone. It's going to vary based on spiritual maturity. You know, it's going to base on your comfort zone, but the reality is that there's just some really bad stuff out there yeah. and there's some good stuff out there and you're bad and we're good. That's just, you know, I just spoke on lust. I'm like, can we just be honest and say we all struggle with it? I mean, let's just be honest. Let's, yeah. let's not kid ourselves like, oh, we're in church. I mean, let's, we, we struggle with it. It's one of the number one things, especially for men that men struggle with. So if we can get to that point and then, you know, I shared what I didn't, I was pastoring when I figured out God's much more interested in you hit on this while ago about me learning to do the right things mm-hmm. than stopping to doing the wrong things. Not they're not both important, but I know that as I learn to do the right things, the bad things will begin to take care of themselves. Yeah. Doesn't mean I still don't need accountability and different things in my life, but we, I grew up like you don't do any of these things and you're going to be okay. Almost like you were <clears throat> at jeopardy of setting a new legal precedent. If yeah. you endorse something, like if you go to the movies, that's a rated R movie. And you're endorsing everything in the movie. Well, that was, I grew up with that. I, mean, we, I never went to a movie till I got married because it was, if you go to a movie, you're supporting the porn industry because eventually that money is going to get itself to the porn. Yeah, it's all like just if a you filter. go to a Disney movie, <laughs> eventually down. it's going to trickle down and make porn. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's a bad choice of words. Okay. <laughs> 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 of course, the first, uh, the first movie I ever went to was John Belushi's Animal House. I'm like, yeah, they were right. Yeah. The was right. <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were not It wrong. sounded so innocent. I thought, like Dr. Doolittle or something, Animal House. How bad can it be? Yeah. (laughs) Just animals. (laughs) We interrupt this episode to bring you an update on the guyswhodostuff.com universe. You are now invited to participate in asking questions through the website. Yeah, we would like you to be a guest host with us. Yeah, we want to share the love here and bring you out of your pajamas into our (laughs) basement. I thought you were going to say into our pajamas. No, thanks. That's not the invite we're making here. No. But uh, we are having a ton of fun asking questions and getting to know people. And we thought we should ask other people to join us. Let's bridge the gap. Yeah, if you got great questions that you have a burning desire to get an answer for. What we want to invite you to do is go to guyswhodostuff.com. Go on down to the sidebar there. You'll see a red button. Red button. It says hit start recording and you can record a 90 second voicemail. Just your question to put on the show. Mm-hmm. And if, if the question's a good question, we'll play it on the episode. We'll ask the guests or if the question is for us, we'll answer your question. And we just want to hear from you. We do. We do want to hear from you. So find that little red button, guyswhodostuff.com. And now back to our episode. Oh, man. Right, switching gears a little bit. I'm really curious about your answer to this question. So you, as a church planner, you wore a lot of hats. Yeah. So it was when you were working construction and having 100 people. That was your hat. So you got the sad gig and you're working hard. Then you started hiring people. Now you're a smaller church, 300 people. You got a small staff, tight knit. Great. Probably interesting. I don't know. I can't speak for you. That's kind of season of your life to getting to the point where you're like 150 to 250 staff now, or you're 
lead founding pastor and also CEO and a $20 million annual budget and all these campuses everywhere. Growth. Crazy. When, when you look back on it, what to you is like Camelot? What was the phase where you're like, I should have, or do you have a phase like that where I should have enjoyed that more? I wish somebody would have told me that was a really good season and I would have been a little bit more present. Are there any? Yeah. When we were, when we were in our first building, we called the fire trap and we'd maxed it out at three services. It only said about four or 500. And we were given the property to build the Raleigh campus by a man who didn't even go to our church. And then we met in a school for two years. We, we literally, we sold our building to another church for what we paid for it. We were like, man, if you, somebody gave us property, if you could just take over this, you know, yeah. in fact, what do you, what we paid for is what we owed on it. It's what we sold it to the church. And then we moved into a school and started paying a ridiculous amount of money um, till the building was built. And that was it. There was something about those two and a half years of um, unparalleled. I, I call it the gunslinger years. Like yeah. there's nothing our guy can't do, you know, cause we didn't have money. We didn't have big <laughs> givers and we're going to build an $11 million building. And it's like, it's so funny. Like we can't even pay the utilities when we get in there. That's how, you know, that's how, but God in two and a half years, we grew from a thousand to 3000 people. Huh. And God brought people in. I'll never forget one guy walked up to me one day. We were just trying to raise money, kind of finish out the year. And he said, hey, t- I tell you what, the last two weeks of the year, uh, whatever people give above their regular giving, what they've already pledged, I'll just match it. And it like tripled what he said he would match. And because uh, I said, hey, we got a donor who will match. And, yeah. and so I go to lunch with this guy and I said, well, this is what this is what people gave. But. We, I only said you would match up to this much. He said, well, no, I think to be fair, we just need to match what they gave. Mm-hmm. And he pulled out his little personal checkbook and wrote a check for, <laughs> you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and slid it across the table to me. I'm like, I don't think I'll let, and then wrote, went to his check register. You remember that? Like check number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was just those days where there was that sense of excitement. Mm-hmm. This is what I've learned about big churches. When you don't have anything, you got all the faith in the world. Mm-hmm. When you get something, your faith diminishes because you, you don't want to lose it. Mm. You don't want to lose what you got. Yeah. So there's a sense you pull back and um, you, you play it safe. I, I like those years because I felt like we weren't playing it safe. And that's more my personality. Mm-hmm. Gunslinger. I think so. Be a cowboy. I always want to be a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you were mentioning before, like why you think people want to talk to you. I love this concept. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but an unconference where successful people will get together and tell you their mistakes. So looking back, what did you learn through the hard lesson of experience that you would tell somebody just starting out, avoid these things at all costs? Um, I would say the biggest mistake I made probably was in the last five years where I probably started withdrawing too much thinking a new generation is going to come on. And you mentioned your role changes, you know, throughout. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that I would ever, <clears throat> ever see myself as the CEO. Cause I think at the end of the day, I'm always going to have a pastor's heart. Even today I would much rather that's cowboy sit- executive officer. Yeah. Then that's okay. <laughs> I would still rather sit down with a couple. Like if a couple comes up and says, my marriage is a mess. My first instinct is when can I figure out how to make these guys? Cause I feel like that's really more what my heart is. Yeah. Um, than doing chapels for our staff. And I know that sounds horrible, but 
I, I think I withdrew a little too much. And I think hope lost some of its identity because mm. you got a new generation that comes along and they feel like they have the DNA, but they don't necessarily have the DNA. And here's the other thing I found out. Uh, they're really good at managing stuff, but they have no idea how to build something. And there's a big difference. Mm. And so you can move, you can really move quickly into the managerial level. We got a big business we're running here and you start reading business books and all these kinds of things. So what I've learned getting back to what you were saying is the role I'm in today is re-engaged, but not necessarily as a CEO, but more of a father figure. Yeah. Like how can I love you guys and help you, you know, not like do this, do this, do this, but how can I help you guys understand what it is? The, the magic, if you want to call it the Disney magic that God put on hope, what made us unique and how you don't lose it. What do you think are, some of the key building blocks to building something. I mean, I've transitioned recently. I'm starting a company. Josh runs a company. A lot of people listen to the podcast are business owners and we interview a lot of business owners. Mm -hmm. What's the, if, if building something successful had a recipe, which it probably doesn't, like you were saying, everybody wants the formula and it probably doesn't exist. But if, if it, what characteristics or what kind of ingredients create an environment for building something? Well, I think you have to know, I think you do have to know what you're good at. Yeah. Um, like if you've taken discover your strengths, my top strength was woo winning others over. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at gathering people. I don't always know what to do with them. And, and when I got, um, my, when I got your these, life could have gone a completely different way. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. You know, all these people like, Hey, what do you guys want to do? Oh. <laughs> and so when I got assessed, <laughs> one of the, you know, by the, by the guy at Indiana, he's like, okay, these are the kind of people you need around you. You need nuts and bolts people. Cause you know, that's not your thing. Yeah. So I'm really, really good at gathering people. Um, so, but you got to know what your strengths are too. You got to, you got to be really committed to the product, whatever it is you're going to do. It's mm. like, yeah. I'm committed to this mm. thing. Um, you gotta, you just gotta believe in it. And, and, and I guess it's part B of that would be, uh, the temptation to not that you don't have to be flexible because climates change, culture changes and things like that. But, um, where I see a lot of church planners fail is they'll have a vision. It's unique. It meets their personality, their gifting, and they'll get two or three good giving families that are like, Hey man, if you don't change the music and we sing more like this, I'm not sure we're going to stay. And then you adapt, you compromise, I guess I would say on your vision. Yeah. And then you've, you've, you've kind of polluted who you are and you've lost your identity and all of a sudden you're off track and then you don't really appeal to anybody. Um, so to, to me, that's, that's a really, really big, just staying true to what you really feel God's called you to do. Yeah. Mm, maybe the why, right? I've been yeah. reading that Simon Sinek book, start with why. <laughs> and when I read your book, you can't, God can chapter three, it's knowing who and not the how. <laughs> and I thought, man, that really relates to business because the why is such the, it's like the nuclear power yeah. that powers the aircraft carrier. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's uh that's a big deal, isn't it? it the is. why. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, I, you ever I, think you'd write a book? No, I never wanted to. My wife just wouldn't quit bugging me about it. <laughs> <laughs> They're good at that, aren't they? I think somewhere like George Washington said that about starting a country. If you just, go, <laughs> just rewind it all the way back. I, like if I, I never wanted if to. If I write but. a book, we could get off my back. <laughs> and uh, and I didn't get that much joy out of it. In fact, I'm trying to finish up a second one, which I'm, I'm really excited about this marriage and family book. <laughs> I like but the sequence like, of that. I didn't enjoy it, but I'm writing a second one. I'm trying, one. <laughs> but it's like, it's just not on my top. I can always find something more important or something I would rather be doing. And I have no hobby. So it's not, not even that than sitting down trying to write a book. Yeah. It's just, oh, yeah. it's just not, I think some people are just gifted that way, Yeah, but it's just not, 
I think I'm a pretty good communicator, but I learned early on a lot of the guys that are gifted to speak aren't necessarily gifted to write and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Cause I've, I've read some phenomenal books by pastors and then I've heard them speak. I'm like, yeah, you should write, mm. you know? And so, <laughs> um, I just, I think we're all wired. To That's it. why we're not doing video. I have a face for this. <laughs> That's uh, Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think along those lines, I had a couple of questions for you about, you know, the family dynamic when somebody is an entrepreneur and being single, and then you get into a relationship where you start putting God first and, and, and in family first and trying to honor like my wife and my kid. And then there's those times when I think, man, if I were just, you know, once in a while, I'm thinking if I was just still single, I could just crush this and knock it out in a week or two. What's that? What advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are thinking those thoughts like struggling with that dynamic and putting family first while they're growing something. You know, it's probably a little bit different from a pastor's perspective because your family can't separate from Mm. what you do. Mm. And that's why I don't apologize at all. If trying, if I can have my kids on staff, Mm. because they just know they, they, they know naturally in their gut, dad would not like this. Dad would like this. This is not something that would reflect what dad's thinking because they've grown up around it. Mm. And I don't know what that looks like in the business world, Mm. but somehow if your kids feel like they have a pride of ownership in what you do, Mm. so they understand the cost that like, like just my son driving me here this morning and dropped me off. He said, I can tell a lot's on your mind. What's on your mind. Mm. He just picked up on that and I hadn't said a word. Mm. And so there's, there's a sense of like, Hey man, we're all in this together. And so anything that could help your family feel like, Hey, this is the season we're going through, but we're in it together. Skin in the game. Yeah. yeah. Including yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. I need to get yeah. better at that. Mm. I'm not, I'm not great at that. I yeah. kind of, I still compartmentalize yeah. a lot. Yeah. Like this is, and then when work is over, like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I just want to yeah. not be working. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and, and again, we have to, as a family, we've had to do that. Like when we get together on Father's Day, I don't want us all sitting around talking about Hope Community. We don't do those things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like if we're going to have these conversations, have them in the office or just have them in the car. But we don't get together as a family and discuss those things. And those guys, they're pretty good at knowing what the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to be more complicated because, you know, Laura worked at the church, too, for 22 years. Mm-hmm. That was actually more of the interesting when when she stopped working. It like redefined our marriage because mm-hmm. we had never not worked together. Yeah. And now I got to go home to a wife who wasn't at work all day. Like, how was your day? And like the other day she told me, she said, she said, you're really, really good at saying nice things and building me up in your messages, but you don't do a good job personally. Mm. And I didn't even respond to that. Mm. It's like, like I said on Sunday, it's those moments like don't need to say anything because no matter what you say right now, your life could end <laughs> if you don't say it the right way. Mm. So I waited till like three days later and I said, you said this the other day. And I said, honestly, I need to apologize because I never had to build you up. Because when we were working together, I saw you all day. Our relationship was that way. You knew you were doing a phenomenal job. She built one of the best family ministries in America. But then all of a sudden, when she wasn't working anymore, and let's, you can say all you want to, that your identity is not your work. That's just stupid. That's just not even realistic. What you do and the difference you make in the world, it, it cannot but be a part of who you are. If it's not a part of who you are, you're probably going to be successful at it. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, she's sitting home, you know. So I now I have to compliment you know, not have to, but I've learned to like on her blogs that she writes, Mm -hmm. she gets some phenomenal response Uh, and different. Like she's consulting with the church tonight. She'll be consulting with the church tomorrow night Mm -hmm. because people pick up quickly when they meet with me. Yeah. This is not you. You're not the brains behind this organization. (laughs) We want to meet with her. And so um, 
she'll meet with a couple of churches tonight and she's helping them. One wants to rebrand yeah. she's pretty good. At that kind of stuff. Some of them can't kind of figure out how to live out their mission statement. Yeah. She's pretty good at helping them yeah. think through those things. And so, but it's changed the dynamics of our marriage. Cause I never had to, I never had to build Laura. She built me up cause I'm the insecure one, but yeah. not her. But then all of a sudden it's like, yeah. so it's funny how it affects our families. She wrote a book called maximize your ministry about 16 leadership principles, to energize your ministry. It's a really good book, man. That's a nice looking cover. Just judging the book by the cover. It's a <laughs> nice looking what book. Everybody says you should do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should judge, you should judge all books. But you know, a lot of those principles too, are just when it talks about it, I know she talks like appreciating volunteers and, but that's, that's true with our employees too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm horrible at that. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember one time I had a guy come into my office <laughs> he's now my executive pastor. And this is when he was right out of college and working with college kids. And he said, Hey, I don't need a lot of encouragement and stuff, but could you just tell me every once in a while I don't suck? And I said, <laughs> yeah, hang on a second. So I turned to my computer and typed out, I don't suck, put it in real big font, print it off. Hang, hang that in your cubicle. And if it changes, I'll come get the sign. Yeah, he just looked at me like, oh, wow, that just happened. <laughs> I, that's not my, real, I'm, I'm just the old school. I just, I, I pay you, just go do your job. <laughs> I shouldn't have to tell you how, how great you are all the yeah. time. You know, and it's kind of like the guys that do the victory dance in the end zone. You get paid millions of dollars to yeah. catch a touchdown. It's yeah. not that big of a deal. Shake it, shake it, shake it. It so. is funny how like your marriage can be redefined because I was working at Hope yeah. for the last nine years and like any job, you know, going, spending a good amount of time there, getting stuff done, enjoying it, um, committed there when I didn't need to be there. And then when the transition came and it's time, all right, I'm going to start my own thing. I built this desk. We're sitting in my basement. Mm-hmm. I redid my basement a couple of times. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who knows what it'll be next week. <laughs> I, decided, I decided, all right, so now I'm going to do this thing for serious. Yeah. And uh, I've noticed that for me, like I'm sitting here working and I start early now. So I'll put in like a good amount of time before my wife and kids get home. And then when she gets home from work where she's been working and spending all her time, I'm like, Hey, you want to do something? Want to go for a walk? Want to go get some coffee? Want to go get a drink? Want to do uh, some something? Want to do something? That's great. And um, she's kind of like, I just got home. Like <laughs> Lori and I were having this conversation at church Saturday night. And she said, maybe we should have Joe and Laura hang out together. And I'm like, Cause that's what, like I'm coming home and I'm done. I was like, Hey, can we go out to dinner? Cause she's been alone all day. Yeah. She's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so I've, I've heard you, I've heard you talk a lot about accountability and having, having, um, Gary vet, right. Yeah. As your, as your friend, yeah. he's a, a, maybe your best friend. Right. Yeah. So how do you define, um, the, the, the relationship with Laura and the relationship with Gary, whereas, um, because I have a best friend, right. From, yeah. from, for a long time now, his name's Brad King. Oh, and uh, thought I was going to be me. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Joe's Joe, you're, you're, you're <laughs> right. Such a close second. Though. I was just holding you know, my breath. Okay. Sorry. Well, there, you know, he's, he's been my buddy forever. And it's like, when I say he's my best friend, it's like the first few years of marriage, my wife's like, I, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be your best friend. Like now I'm, careful how I talk about my buddy mm-hmm. around my wife. So I have to, my wife is, I'm, I'm seeing that change in my own life. Like my wife is my best friend. I spend mm-hmm. the most time with her, mm-hmm. but Gary, how do you define your relationship with, with your, with your buddy? You know, it's interesting. I, 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 one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is there are just seasons of life where things are changing. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a season before you have children. There's a season when you have young children. There's a whole different season when you have teenagers. And then you, you go to an empty nest season. And a lot of families, couples these days, that's the highest rate of divorce, 25 years and higher. Huh. Because mm-hmm. people can't, their whole identity was their kids. Mm-hmm. But it's a new season. You got Laura not working, you not working at church and being, it's a whole new season. So the way, and I always have to be careful how I say this, but 
you know, Laura and I just celebrated 40 years of marriage. There's nothing I can't tell her. Mm. There's nothing. But in the first 15 years of marriage, that's probably a different season, you know, because there's lots going on. But you you build that trust. You build that commitment together. Like you finally get to the place like there is nothing she can't handle. So I could tell her, but you better get there before you just start telling your wife, Oh, I just spent three hours looking at porn today. Yeah, but Mike told me I should tell you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> okay. Uh, how, so how many conversations <laughs> do you think happened like that after last week's message? I don't know. <laughs> and who spends $3? <laughs> and then how many confused men woke up the next morning? Like he was wrong. Oh God. Like, <laughs> I want my money back. <laughs> but, um, but Gary, but there will be times where I can just go talk to Gary about, Hey, our marriage is, it's a different season now. Mm. And cause he's an empty nester and, 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 and Martha, you know, his wife is out of work right now. And it's like, so we can, and he can give me advice and encourage me um, certainly professionally, but even personally, like, I mean, it's not a big shock. Some Mondays, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. It's like talk me off the ledge. Whereas I don't want to put Laura in that position because mm. she's thinking from a standpoint, Oh my gosh, are we going to be homeless? You know? And um, so I think, I think over time you figure that out. Yeah. I, I think you always need that. Um, I think you always need that guy. Cause sometimes like, like I said, Gary's my sounding board for how I'm going to bring up a conversation with Laura. Mm. And so it just depends that season that you're in, but yeah, if you're newlywed and yeah. you want to drop some bomb on your wife and you're not, you know, it, you probably want to be really, really careful yeah. about doing those kinds of things. Oh, yeah. And so you do need, you do need that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Lori and I are still figuring that out. So 20 years this 20 summer, years. it's our anniversary. We're you going were to Europe. married when you were 12, 12. And, uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uncommon, but uh, you know, you do what you got to do. And, um, but I know that for me, I thought I figured it out once. Like I figured out the balance. It's, I shouldn't vent to Lori. Like if I'm going to vent and I'm just going to be a jerk, Mm. and complain about crap i should do that to a friend mm. and then i realized that that was only like half of it because then i wouldn't actually share my feelings like about how i was feeling and going through stuff and i'm an internalizer midwest guy like swallow your feelings and you can deal with them when you die mm. or leave them for somebody else you know yeah. uh, <laughs> so i think yeah i'm really excited to get to a place where I feel like I have an answer for that. Like, <laughs> well, and, and I don't think that's guess and check for me <laughs> because um, like, I've just learned really in the past few years that don't complain about what's going on at work with her. Mm. Cause once she's a fixer, she's going to start telling me, well, you should decide and fix it. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, it makes her feel left out. Mm-hmm. Second g- guys get over things quicker than girls do. And mm-hmm. you get over things quicker than your wives do yeah. most likely. Mm-hmm. So if, if I complain, about a staff person or about an elder or about a meeting or something. The next day I may get up, I'm just venting, getting it out of my system. Yeah. Laura will see them at church, you mm. know? So, cause, and, and Peter talked about that. Love your life in an understand why, you know, mm-hmm. live with your wife in an understand in an understanding way, because they are, they, they're different. They're wired differently than we are. And so I had to realize, man, I got it. What are you, what are you upset about? I got over that. 10 minutes after I talked to you about yeah. it. And Guys, so, we've been like that since we were kids. We get in a fight and then yeah. we're best friends. Let's go have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> and so. I'm so mad at you. They, punch you in the face. Now we're they, best friends. And that's a good thing that they, they want to protect us and have our best interest. But then, so I can talk to Gary about things that I just want to drag Laura into because I don't want, 
I don't want it to affect her perspective mm-hmm. on people and yeah. situations. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk to you about what it feels like. What does it feel like to live your life in a fishbowl? I feel like there's only a handful of professions where people, people don't just care about how you do your job. They care about like how you feel while you're doing it. And there are just, there's not a lot of professions where people are very interested in how you spend your money. Uh, what your stance is on something that they don't really care what the next person's stance is on something. And um, I've noticed that in the church specifically, there's almost a, a desire to see somebody fall from the majority of people. Well, is that just in church or is that just in the, also in the world? I mean, it probably I, is. Mike, he's kind of like a movie star, right? You got that same exposure of people wanting to know all the, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Somebody, yeah. I would like to see them fall for would some Would like reason. to see them fall. Is, um, he, is that human nature? It probably is. It's probably not just pastors, but I remember I was, I got to go to a, it was like in the middle of the day kind of meeting and it was at world overcomers with pastor Andy, mm. who's a cool guy. And he was talking to this group of pastors and he was talking about the topic of money. And, um, he said, you know what I've learned? Cause somebody asked him about salary or something. And he said, I've learned that everybody has a amount of money that they're comfortable with their pastor making. And it's a little bit less than they make. Like that's the number. And then people start to get uncomfortable when it goes above what they make. Um, and there's been a lot of like mega church pastors who have been in the news with the very little oversight. They'll have like their own board. They'll do stuff that, I mean, let's be really generous and describe it as poor decisions that they didn't think through that creates a stereotype that there is a, a seedy underbelly of like, mm-hmm. like what's the real you? Like mm-hmm. what's the, what's the, when nobody's looking like the real, like what's this for? How much money are you skimming off the top mm-hmm. kind of stuff? Um, what, what have you, have you had any findings about like, uh, how to develop thick skin? Like what's the, how do you, how do you deal with but that? A couple of different things there. One is, cause you probably can't do I've nothing. I've never been in, in a church where I didn't have a board that I reported to. I've never pastored a church. And so if, if I'm an elder, I'm one of nine elders. I have one vote. I don't mm-hmm. chair the board. I don't chair the meetings. I have an opinion. Um, they set my salary. They do my yearly reviews. <clears throat> in fact, I have my yearly review this Thursday night. Um, they, they take care of those things. And it's, and for me, it's been, it's worked out fine. Like I was at a, a big, I was at a leadership thing in Dallas with uh, 10 mega church pastors and they were all like half my age churches, nowhere near as big as hope, but they all made more than me. And so when I came back, I mentioned it to the board and they looked into it and they're like, Oh, wow. We pay you like in the two percentile of what we should pay you. And I'm like, and I'm good with that. And cause I don't really, Laura was working. I said, but one day you'll want me to retire and you won't want me to stay around here just because, you know, those kinds of things. So I said, I'm going to trust you guys to take care of those kinds of things. And I just kind of left it at that. And they did, they put a plan in place and um, we're still working through all those things because nobody, we don't have, we don't have a line. that's like, you're going to retire here. So, you know, I would, I don't even want to retire, but you don't want me around just because I feel like I need a paycheck. And I opted out. I had to opt out of social security. I was 24 and I became a pastor because part of our denomination, it was a separation of church and state. So those, it gets a little more complicated that way. So that's the one I, 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 one of the biggest issues I deal with this pastors is like, why, why, why would you even set yourself up like this? Is there a hassle with the board? Yeah. Cause you can't be a dictator. And sometimes it's, it's easier to make decisions. 
but boy, the protection of your backside is, is phenomenal. And so, so I have a board now, if anybody went and asked what I made, they would tell them and they would defend it. They were like, let me tell you why this is what he makes, because this is what he has made for all these years. And this is what he should make. Cause we, we pay based on a survey of like 3,500 churches in America, you know, where do you live? What size the church experience, those kinds of things. And then there's a percentile. So we, we don't handle ourselves much differently than we do a business. So we have some checks and balances, but I know some, I got some friends, they have none. Yeah. They have no board or they have other pastors at other churches that are their board, which I don't even understand that I could see them having for consultants, but to have pastors at other churches setting my salary at hope. I don't, I don't understand the logic behind that. The fishbowl part is I don't, sometimes I think that uh, people know me enough. They'll judge my heart, not my actions. But then I found it. No, that's just, they don't because I, we just celebrate our 40th. And like I said, a year ago, Laura knows I love Corvettes. So she found one is convertible. It was older, you know, low miles, but it was older and, but great shape, beautiful car. And, um, but yet probably cost half of what my pickup truck costs. Right. And I only drove it on sunny days. I'd take it out and ride around a little bit and park it. And, and, uh, so people started, a few people saw me out and said that I was driving around in a hundred thousand dollar car. And I'm mm. like, well, you're only off about 80,000, mm. you know? And, but again, I sold it. It's like, just put it up for sale. It's just not, it's not worth mm. because people are just looking for something. Mm-hmm. Um, we're selling our house right now just for that very reason. We, we bought a big house. It seemed like a good investment, not a mansion or anybody stretch of imagination, but you know, my son's a real estate broker. And he said, dad, this would be a good investment for you. Cause a lot of our retirement's tied up in real estate. We brought money with us equity when we came from California. But again, you know, I've had neighbors say they go to hope, Oh, we'll be playing golf. And they'll say your pastor lives in that house. And like, Oh gosh. So that's why we're building and downsizing, but um, it is what it is. And, 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 and I even shared one time in a message that I probably was stupid thinking that, you know, um, people would think, well, heck, he's been married 40 years and he's pastor for 37 straight years. He ought to be able to afford mm-hmm. something, you know, but people don't think that way. So, and, you know, I have people, that, oh, you shouldn't worry about what people think. I, that's impossible for me. I, mm-hmm. I wish I could maybe not let it bother me. But like I said, nobody cares. I drive around a pickup truck that's worth you know, $40,000, but don't drive a Corvette that costs $20,000. So, <laughs> um, you know, no one's ever come to complain about me driving around a truck. So it's just, it just, it just, it is what it is. And, uh, you probably shouldn't get in this role if that's going to be, there's some pastors who don't care. They just don't care. And it works for them. Yeah. It works for them. They brag about their, you know, I was at a gym one day working out with a pastor. He said, I don't, he said, I don't have a suit that costs less than $2,500. And my church leases me a new Mercedes every year. And he's going on and on and on. And I'm like, yeah, that wouldn't, wouldn't work. Or I wouldn't work at Hope. But, um, and that's good. And I don't, I don't, I don't envy them. It's not the culture of Hope. But um, I'm, I don't know that I'm in a position to, I just think, I think pastors need accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you seen or, or, I'm sure you've heard some stories about people without accountability and this kind of situations they get themselves in. Is that, has that ever been like maybe uh, something that you've dealt with personally or something that's come up and like, Oh, that's what that looks like. Oh, were people not having accountability? Yeah. Well, yeah, I got a friend right now that uh, pastors a big church and I think half his church is lined up to get jobs at our church and 
You know, it's just because he's just, he's just, he just, um, he's more of a dictator. He doesn't have a board at all. He started the church. And so, um, but even when I started hope, you know, if you're going to have an elder board, they got to be people around long enough to people feel like they're qualified to be elders and trust them to make decisions. But even then immediately we put in what we call a temporary elder board. It's like, Hey, I don't, you're here until we two or two or three years old and we can elect the real elder board. It's just something about knowing, um, that people have your back. If, yeah. if, if, um, and I find comfort in saying, Hey, you know, my, my board gave me a five-year contract and said, this is what you're going to make and da, 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 da. And we'll reevaluate it at the end of five years and go from there. That's pretty unique for churches, but I'm, I think I, I, I like the fact that people know that they don't like, I can't, I can't even sign a check at Hope Community. I don't even know the code to get into the accountant's offices and things like that. Yeah. So the fact that I have absolutely nothing to do with money, I find great comfort in because you can make that accusation all you want to. It would take about 15 seconds to say, nah, there's, there's, that's impossible. Mm. What would you say to like an average person that doesn't attend a church who is offended by the like existence of a mega church, like just can't wrap their mind. Why would that many people come and they screw up parking and then yeah. they don't pay taxes and on property. And I don't know if that's true. I'm not, we don't. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> and that's why a lot of cities now, like it's almost impossible to build a campus in Holly Springs because the church doesn't provide any tax revenue. So they don't want to, they don't want you tying up their land. They're loud and they got all these yeah. archaic political beliefs. Like how do you, I think what the, would you say to that person? I think the best thing that there's a couple of good things about mega churches. One is in some levels, they're able to do some things that smaller churches can't do. Often smaller churches are just trying to keep the doors open. Um, we've invested millions of dollars of drilling wells in Africa and at a campus in Haiti. And we're, while they're having all the rebellion, our campus is open to the community to come in as a refuge for people to come in and, um, the other thing is um, a lot of people come to a church like hope and they're like, wow, I haven't been to church in 20 years. I might come back to this because of what they think. So it kind of breaks down of, of the perception of what church is, that it's boring, that it's not relevant. I just had some neighbors who came last week for the first time and they came because they go to church every week. It's a Catholic church. And he said, man, I got a 15 year old, a 12 year old and a 10 year old and I'm losing them. Mm-hmm. They go and stare at the floor and, I've got all these friends who go to your church. I said, well, check it out. He said, and this is what he said. He said, I was going to come last weekend, but my friends said I have to get emotionally and psychologically prepared for the chaos. <laughs> and I said, I'll just put your blinkers on. They'll park you right in front. Yeah. And, uh, but his response was, oh my gosh, my kids are like, can we go back there to the church? Well, that's what I mean. Uh, and the other thing is a big church is a safe place for people to come and hide. Yeah. And you know, we, a lot of people we get are people that have been in ministry that have either screwed up or, uh, they've been shafted in some way and they just need to heal. And sometimes they're at hope for a year or so before I meet them. And they're like, yeah, we just been hiding out, just being loved on and healing. And um, so I think that's one of the benefits, a couple of the benefits of, of a mega church. It's like, you know, there, there, there are bad school teachers. There are bad police officers. There are bad politicians. And there's bad churches, hmm. bad pastors, yeah. and, but it, it would not be fair to just judge, um, you know, like just recently, I think, and I could be off on the statistic, but I think there's 400,000 Southern Baptist churches in America. Hmm. That's a lot of churches. 
But this report that just came out about the abuse of the Southern Baptist pastors, I think there's like 200 accounts over the last 50 years. Well, good gracious. I bet if you checked any profession, you're going to just find bad apples mm. everywhere. Yeah. And uh, the sad thing is, is like, you know, if it was, if it was covered up, that's a bit, a whole different issue, mm-hmm. but it really, it's not realistic to think that you're going to have any section of society where you're not going to have some, mm-hmm. some people that are going to take advantage of the situation. Yeah. All right. So if you're, you know, that people listening to this podcast are probably from what I've heard you say are probably like your favorite kind of people, like pioneers, starters of things, doers of things. Um, what have you found to be like the fuel that keeps you excited about keeping going? Um, what are some of the elements that, that go into that? Probably no different than, <clears throat> than a business owner. What keeps me going is the person I'll run into in the atrium who will say, let me tell you how this church has impacted my life yeah. or impacted my family. And so I don't, I don't want to trivialize it, but it's in some ways I'm selling Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, I'm trying to tell you, if you, if you buy in this product, it'll change your life. It can make a difference in your life. And so I think it's the passion about what it is you're doing. And you got to, I mean, even if it's just to make money, yeah, that's, that's not a, I know, I know that we live in a culture now um, where if, if you, if you make money, you're almost a bad person, yeah. but I don't, that's not biblical. Yeah. And so even if your sole goal is to provide an incredible income for your family and security, whatever it is, that passion that keeps you going, that, that brings you the joy, then uh, what do you believe in? Yeah. If you can connect with your why, what you're passionate about, then the fuel is seeing it happen, like mm-hmm. getting the, I mean, if it was a business, it'd be the customer success story. It would be yeah. getting to do why you did all this and seeing it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's why. You dedicated your life. That's why you set up the, the, the structure. That's why you founded hope and to get to, I mean, what a privilege to get to see it work so often. I think. Yeah. I shared last week. I, there's not a week that goes by that. I don't talk or get emails from people. That's like, this is my story. And this is, yeah. this is how our life has changed. And so, yeah, that's, that's, I still, uh, seriously, I get teary every time I, every time I read those things. Yeah. And so it's just, I mean, with all the frustrations of anybody else, I'm not going to play like I don't. Uh, that's the thing that keeps you getting out of bed and keeps you doing it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Thank you for being here today. Yeah. So hey, what a joy to hang out with you guys. Come and and I didn't get bitten basement. by one of your dogs, man. Well, cool. <laughs> you haven't left yet. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> I still got to get out. <laughs> all right, man. Well, thanks so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks guys for the invite. All right, cool. All right. Later on. Adios. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening to that episode with Mike Lee from Hope Community Church. Mike Lee is such a rock star and just making such a difference in people's lives. And it was so nice to sit here with him and and, uh, learn from him. I didn't want to say nice stuff when he's here. I have a tendency. I want to say encouraging things to people, but when I'm face to face and eyeball to eyeball with them, I get uh, really mushy and I don't like that. I should work on that. Yeah. There's probably just, nothing wrong with it just gets your awkward. emotions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to hug Especially now? with Mike. He's such like a wild at heart guy. And yeah. he just, for me, has been somebody that's showcases that like, you know, guys who are Christians don't have to be nice. They have to be real yeah. and honest. And uh, just, I just appreciate that in him. Yeah. And I know I mentioned it in the podcast, but it was really refreshing to me to get to work for a guy that had seemingly 
understood some of the stuff that I really challenged. Yeah. I was, I was challenged in my understanding of when I was younger. Yeah. Like it was all about not doing stuff or mm. a twisted sense of purity. Um, yes. You really relate to him from that angle, right? Yeah. I relate to him from the, like, this guy's like my dad, like cool guy, like cowboy boots, jeans, Corvette, like just, man, like, like just full throttle dude. But he's shown that God is real and can just be a um, great presence in somebody's life to direct their energies in a positive way and make a difference in the world. And then, yeah. 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 That's, that's awesome. He's a relatable guy. Uh-huh. I know yeah. for me too, thinking about um, like, I, I, I want to get angry when he's like, and I had to sell my Corvette, but yeah. I, I don't, but it's always like, then it's more like, how, how cool is it that he could yeah. have decided not to? Well, I'll Just he doesn't want to make a thing about it. Yeah. I mean, he, he knows enough, he knows enough people that with Corvettes that I'm sure he could get his get right around. Yeah. He drive. can borrow mine anytime he wants. There you go. Yeah. Now you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it really was nice having Mike here and being, being on the show with Mike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you find out about hope? We both go to hope, Josh and I, I was told about hope by a clown. I know that sounds crazy. (laughs) I think that's how 99% of people end up there. (laughs) I think it's a statistic that's true. I wanted to share that on the show, but I just let it go. I just like, I, it's not the right time, man. So it's like a birthday party. We were, when we, when we relocated to the triangle, we were, my wife was saying, we got to find a church. We got to pray for the right church and all that. So we, uh, we were at a Halloween party and, uh, our neighbor, this uh, sweet lady, she was dressed up like a clown. And uh, she's like, oh, you want to try Hope Community Church? Yeah. And uh, we, we it just hit us like, hey, that's interesting. That was the first we'd heard of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we tried it out. And then it was like all the uphill from there. <laughs> the clown, <laughs> thanks to the clown. But uh, that's how we heard. Well, that's a valuable it. piece of advice, everybody. If a clown tells you something, you should trust that advice. At least look into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. Show's over. 